Good afternoon, everybody. A very warm welcome here to our Planet Talk in the Frome Pavilion. Um, less meat, less heat. Is the elephant in the room a cow? Uh, can we really tackle climate change without addressing our relationship with meat consumption and the livestock industry? My name is Deb Tribe. I'm from ABC Radio Adelaide. It's a pleasure to be facilitating our discussion this afternoon. Before I introduce our panellists, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet here today on the ancestral lands of the Ghana people. We acknowledge and respect the Ghana people's cultural, spiritual, physical and emotional connection with their land, waters and community. And we acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the land and waters of the Adelaide region on which we meet today and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging. Well, let's introduce our wonderful panel. Yes, we should thank the traditional custodians for what they have done for us. I'll start, um, if I can, to my right. Angie Plummer is CEO of Less Meat, Less Heat, an entirely volunteer NGO working to address climate change through diet change and to minimise the impact of livestock agriculture on global warming. She's passionate about environmental advocacy and is the communications manager at animal welfare charity Action for Dolphins. Angie recently returned from Tokyo after launching legal action against the Japanese government in an effort to end the annual dolphin hunts in Taiji. <laughs> Angie is also an advisor for the world's only bonobo sanctuary located in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She's based in London, but she's with us today. Great to have you here, Angie. I'll get you to save your applause because we've got Lots of people on the panel. Andy Lowe, Professor Andy Lowe is a British-Australian scientist. He's an expert in genetic, biological and ecosystem resources. He's discovered lost forests, championed to eliminate illegally logged timber, served the United Nations and in 2018 was the first scientist in residence at the Australian Financial Review. Andy is inaugural director of Agri-Food and Wine at the University of Adelaide, serving as the external face for food industry and government sectors across South Australia and the world. Great to have you aboard, Andy. <laughs> Cecile God is a food system scientist at the University of Queensland and the Australian Federal Government Agency, CSIRO. She's passionate about the challenges in relation to livestock production systems and global change. And as part of her research, Cecile uses a range of innovative analytical and modelling approaches to provide new insights as to the relationship between grass-fed livestock, food production, land use dynamics and climate change. In 2018, Cecile was awarded the Australian Government Queensland Women in STEM Prize in recognition for her research and advocacy for diversity, leadership and gender equality. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> directly to my right, Matthew Evans. Matthew trained as a chef and worked as a high-profile restaurant critic before throwing it all away to become a smallholder in Tasmania's peaceful and picturesque Huon Valley. He now fattens pigs, grows vegetables and milks a recalcitrant dairy cow for regular Friday afternoon feasts on Fat Pig Farm. Matthew presents the popular gourmet farmer on SBS and has hosted two documentary series, What's the Catch and For the Love of Meat. He's the author of 11 books on food and when he's not weeding, writing, cooking, agitating or farming, Matthew is going to teach his son to fish. A warm welcome for all of our panellists, please. Well, as we probably all know, Australia has just sweltered through its hottest summer, breaking more than 200 extreme temperature records that we didn't want to see broken. We also experienced serious bushfires in Victoria and Tasmania and torrential downfalls in Townsville. It's fair to say that our climate and the weather are rapidly changing for the worse. Angie, I might start with you, please. Could you set the scene for us as to what challenges our planet and all upon her are facing due to climate change? Yeah, as you said, you don't have to look far to see the effects of climate change right here in Australia. Widespread drought, flooding at the same time. There's a massive biodiversity loss, and that's down to the warming climate and also a thing that we don't discuss that often when we are talking about climate change, and that's the impact of livestock agriculture 
on the climate and more generally on the environment. And that's a massive problem because it's actually 14 to 25% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, depending on what study you look at. So it's having a bigger impact than the global transport sector. So that's all the trains, planes, cars, boats in the world combined. And also if you actually look at some short-term emission studies, with include methane, it could even be as high as 50% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. And yet we barely discuss it, so that's an issue. And if you look further than just the climate, it's actually responsible for 80% of worldwide deforestation, which is a leading cause of biodiversity loss. And it uses 32% of Australia's fresh water. So that's about 15,000 litres of water to produce a kilo of beef or to put it in a sort of more digestible way. You could say it's, yeah, sorry, that's a pun, not pun unintended. Um, it's about the equivalent one burger is about 27 showers. So, you know, when you have things in place like the government handing out um, in Queensland where I used to live, uh, timers to put in your shower to make sure you only have four minute showers. But at the same time, um, at that time, they were approving about 1,500 football fields worth of deforestation for cattle grazing every single day. We really need to sort of reprioritize the way we look at the impact of the food that we eat and especially livestock agriculture on the environment. Angie, given those statistics, which are quite shocking, why is it that the elephant in the room is a cow? Why are we reluctant to talk about the consumption of meat? I think because it's a cultural issue, the way we think about food as well. And I think to a large degree, this is an area where people feel somewhat hopeless. They don't think as an individual you can have that much of an impact. But there was this really great study conducted last year by Oxford University looking at the impact of food from farm to fork at 38,000 farms across the planet. And they actually found this is an area where, as an individual, you can have a massive impact. In fact, it's possibly an area where you can have the biggest impact as an individual, just cutting down your meat intake. And that doesn't have to mean reducing it completely. So if everybody were to switch to a vegan or vegetarian diet overnight, it would roughly cut about 49% about of agricultural emissions and it would save about 3 billion hectares of land. But that same study also tested a second scenario where people just halved their meat intake and that was about 70% as effective. So we don't have to turn vegan or vegetarian overnight, although that's fantastic, it has a huge impact if you can, but even just reducing meat intake to something, a level that's probably healthier for us anyway, can still have a really massive and immediate impact. When you're talking about meat, are you only talking about livestock or are you talking about aquaculture as well? Aquaculture is a big, has a big carbon footprint as well, but the worst in, in that there is in terms of the scale is definitely beef and lamb, and then it moves down through um, it gets better for chicken and then to like fish the farmed in a sustainable way is better and that largely comes down to the amount of grain and feed that needs to go into producing per 100 grams of protein as well so with the larger animals they require a lot of feed and they're suggesting that about 70 67 percent of all deforestation is actually for agriculture reasons, actually just to produce the grain to feed those larger animals. So there do is a difference between the animals. Yeah. Sure. Do we have any statistics on how many vegetarians and vegans there are globally and then within Australia? Do those stats actually exist? There is a lot of missing data there. Uh, in terms of the levels of vegetarians and vegans in Australia, it is increasing, especially with younger generations, but it is kind of moving quite slowly, although actually sale of vegan and vegetarian products is doing really well. There is a bit of a gap in the data, but I think it's moving up to about 11% of uh, the Australian population now identifies as vegetarian or vegan. So that's still 2 million people around about, so it's a good figure. It's great to see. 
Yeah, and in places like the UK, there's been uh, like about a 300% increase in people identifying as um, being flexitarian, so eating a lot less meat. Uh, but that still pales in comparison to places like Bangladesh and India, where it's as close as 30 to 40% of the population. I might ask a few questions of Professor Andy Lowe. Um, Professor, are humans designed to eat meat? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, we're omnivores. Uh, we have had a mixed diet uh, over the uh, evolutionary uh, period, and certainly when we look at um, uh, apes, uh, they would also have a, a mixed diet, but not so much uh, on a, on a heavy meat-based uh, diet. When I think if we're, we're to look uh, today at exactly how much meat we are consuming, it's probably way too much. If you look at the World Health Organization guidelines for how much meat we should be consuming for a healthy diet, it's about 65 grams per day. Anybody know how much the average Australian consumes? Anybody got any ideas? 65 grams is the recommended amount. How much does the average Australian consume? 250. 250 grams. I mean, that's five times. That's five times the World Health Organization recommended level of meat. On average, that's about 100 kilos uh, of meat a year per individual. And places like Bangladesh and India, they consume about four kilos uh, of meat a year per year per individual. So obviously, there's a massive discrepancy globally in terms of the amount of meat that's, uh, that's consumed. On an individual basis, if you were all to reduce your meat consumption, you would get some immediate health benefits from reducing it to the World Health Organization guidelines. 65 grams of meat, it's not that much, but you don't have to eat meat every day. You can save up for a delicious Wagyu burger at the end of the week. To, uh, and it doesn't mean you have to miss out on your Christmas dinner. You can, uh, again, uh, have periods of consuming meat and then have periods without consuming meat. You don't have to automatically go to a vegetarian or a vegan diet. But, and there, there are some other health considerations uh, that need to be brought in when converting to those types of diets in terms of protein and amino acid profile uh, with those types of diets. Um, Andy, what are the health issues associated yeah. with a high meat diet? You've said that there are some. What are they? So uh, the, the, main, the main issues are cardiovascular, so that's heart disease, heart attacks, and also strokes as well. And that's largely due to the amount of fat that's co-consumed, but also uh, the hormones uh, and other factors that are co-consumed uh, along with that meat. So, yeah, we would all get immediate health benefit by reducing uh, uh, that amount of meat that's consumed a day. But, okay, here in the developed world, we're, um, we're privileged. We have uh, an opportunity to make a decision about our diets. We have a choice that we can express on a daily basis, but in uh, many developing countries, there isn't that choice. There are issues around certain um, uh, groups that uh, have traditionally consumed large amounts of meat, the Maasai uh, in East Africa, where meat is an essential part of their diet because uh, their metabolism is uh, designed to process meat, not large amounts of vegetables. So converting to a, a vegetarian diet uh, isn't for everybody uh, on Earth, and also increasing the amount of meat in uh, uh, sectors of society in developing countries that are on the edge of poverty, meat represents a high protein but high calorie uh, 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 food source, which we need to consider. Andy, in the nations where vegetarianism is the highest, what are the cultural factors that play into that? Yeah, so consumption of pulses uh, is largely tied into a religious uh, ceremony, so um, uh, also you know, I was brought up as a Christian, so eating uh, fish on Friday. Uh, we have uh, strong cultural uh, identities and uh, strong cultural, and some of those are religious uh, traditions that uh, stipulate the consumption of meat on certain days or not during certain periods. And so overturning and converting completely to vegetarianism uh, has to overcome a number of those cultural issues to be widespread. And we don't just need to reduce the amount of meat 
we consume. There are other options as well. Well, that's what I'd like to talk to you about. Exactly, because we're getting the message, okay, reduce the amount of meat. So what are the alternatives? So, um, you know, protein is the new black. You know, we talk about uh, the consumption of protein and, okay, fat's bad for us, too much sugar is bad for us. Okay, protein uh, must be the one basic food element that we can eat that is not too bad. And that's, uh, so there's certainly been uh, a, a focus on protein. So let's, let's look at where we can get protein from. So first of all, you could uh, go to a veggie burger. You can uh, uh, consume uh, uh, soy burgers or other uh, types of vegetable-based protein. The problem with that is that there are certain amino acids that our bodies need to build healthy muscle and healthy development that are not present in all types of plant-based protein. So if you're going to go to a vegetarian diet, then you need a mixture of soy, you need a mixture of uh, uh, leaf-based protein and also grain-based protein to get that balance of amino acids. But uh, there's a new company that's uh, uh, coming out of Berkeley uh, in the US. They're using uh, pulses as an alternative for Um, uh, plant-based burgers, and they call it the fantastic burger. And they have a unique element in there called heme, which also has high iron and gives it the kind of taste and texture uh, of meat. So veggie burgers, number one. Number two is cell-grown meat. Another company based in the US got big backing from Richard Branson and the Gates Foundation, and is actually producing animal tissue from cell, uh, cells grown in a laboratory uh, and then in a production warehouse. So these are vast vats of uh, animal cells which are cultured. They're given uh, a food source, they're given uh, the vitamins, they're given the sugars, and then those uh, cells are harvested and then compacted down uh, into a burger or other uh, types of um, uh, uh, projects. So you can consume meat without consuming meat. Now, the problem with those is they're very expensive at the moment, so a kilo of that meat would cost you uh, (laughs) $28,000. So so maybe not uh, a widespread alternative at the moment. Uh, I don't know how they got hundreds of millions of dollars of investment based on that business plan. Um, But obviously, they're hoping that the cost of those will come down. And with competition, uh, the cost of those will come down. And we see those types of solutions in many science uh, fiction-related films. We never see on the Star Trek, you know, where the food comes from, but it must be uh, some kind of uh, cell-based culturing. Okay, third option, uh, insects. So um, approximately 2 billion people on Earth consume insects as part of their diet. So entomophagy is the scientific term for consuming insects. Uh, I've eaten a few insects in my time, and they are a a delicious alternative. But um, they could also provide a solution for protein-based diets at a very cheap level, particularly things like mealworms, uh, ants, uh, cicadas, crickets. And, of course, in places like Vietnam, tarantulas are consumed by much of the population. When you roast them, they're delicious, I guarantee. Uh, The legs are crispy, and the abdomen... The abdomen is kind of gooey, and... uh, Of course, in Australia, we always compare food to Vegemite, and guess what? Uh, They taste like Vegemite. But you go, you know, it's the yuck factor. So um, the film Ratatouille, you had the fat rat, it said to the thin rat, but they said, uh, when you get past the gag reflex, there's a whole wealth of culinary options that are open to you. (laughs) But we consume arthropods, which are the group that contains insects, We eat prawns, we eat uh, lobsters, we eat a whole range of relatives, closely related relatives of insects, and I think we just need to get over it uh, and start eating some insects. And the, one, two, three, the fourth area is really, now what type of meat do we consume? Angie has talked about beef. Beef produces about 25 kilos of greenhouse gases per kilo of meat. So that's, it's always held up as the bad boy uh, of of meat, Uh, lamb is then there, chicken, pork, and then down to plant-based protein, which is uh, about two kilos of greenhouse gases per kilo of plant-based protein. So even eating plants, you're still contributing to the greenhouse gas emissions, just not way nearly as much 
as uh, with, with meat-based diets. So you don't need to eat beef. You can eat these other uh, animals. Kangaroo, it's very high in iron, very low in fat, and probably more adapted to uh, life here in Australia than some of our introduced uh, elements. So there are options for us that we should be exploring. Thank you, Andy. Cecile, we've heard about the meat alternatives from Andy, but how else, when we look at livestock and meat consumption, can we limit or mitigate the effects of global warming and climate change? Yes, so indeed there are mitigation options, um, so both on the production side, so at the farm level, and also um, on the consumption side or on the demand side. Um, and research is quite clear now that if we want to uh, reduce our carbon footprint, where we really need to have uh, undertake multiple approaches in parallel, so on the production side, um, one of them is the way we, man uh, we manage our manure, so the way we store it, uh, the way we apply it on the fields. Uh, this can have uh, big impacts on how much emissions we uh, get from these practices. So for example, um, having nit nitrogen in excess on our fields from the manure, this will lead to uh, water pollution, but also nitrous oxide emissions back into the atmosphere. Um, then there are ways to reduce uh, the methane emission from enteric fermentation from ruminants. So um, ruminants um, actually CH4, so methane emissions, are the major source of uh, greenhouse gases from um, livestock production. So um, the ruminants, so cattle, sheep and goats, when they digest the food, will emit um, these methane emissions. And there are ways to reduce it through improving, for example, the digestibility of the feed. Um, we can also play with the genetic of the ruminant, ruminants. Um, there are also vaccines, uh, feed additives, um, such as antibiotic enzymes. Uh, there is an interesting um, field of research at the moment looking at algae and uh, looking at how much algae could actually um, reduce methane emission from ruminants. And a very interesting story about 15 years ago, um, a, a Canadian farmer realized that his cows close to the ocean were actually more productive than the cows that he had inland. And so he not, didn't only just rediscover what um, a practice that was done in ancient Greek, Greece and in um, Iceland, but he also helped us realize that um, algae consumption could actually decrease methane emissions. So um, there's actually an algae in uh, coastal Queensland that could reduce methane emission from ruminant to up to 99% in lab experiments. So now we have quite a few researchers uh, looking at uh, what the consequences would um, that have on uh, food production and methane emissions on farms and at larger scales. Um, then there are ways as well to improve farm efficiencies so that we can produce more with less resources. And um, on the production side as well, um, carbon sequestration. Uh, so, for example, soil carbon sequestration has many benefits, um, including improving the soil fertility, but it can also trap uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, but we have to keep in mind that this approach um, is time-limited, so like land that is highly degraded will uh, have very high soil carbon sequestration rates, but the soil um, sequestration will saturate after a certain point in time, and also it's highly irreversible. So if a farmer changes its practices for something that is not as good for um, the soil, then we will have this release of carbon back into the atmosphere and like droughts or other climatic fluctuations can also uh, release back this uh, carbon into the atmosphere. Before we get to the demand side, just on that production side, you've come up with a whole range of different things that could be brought into effect that would very dramatically reduce emissions. So what are the barriers to those actually being implemented? Yeah, there are many barriers, uh, social, economic, um, environmental barriers as well. Um, so, again, do we have access to those technologies? Um, are they affordable? Are they available um, everywhere in the world? That's definitely one of our challenges. Um, but, yeah, technological breakthroughs are very exciting and we see them more and more um, flourishing. So, What about the demand side? So on the demand side, uh, moderating our consumption of um, livestock products, as mentioned previously. Um, reducing food waste is also um, a key mitigation strategy and we can all play a role in that. 
what's quite interesting is that in developing countries, most of um, the food waste is happening at the farm production level and during transportation. But in our developed countries, like Australia, most of the food waste um, is happening um, at the retailer stage. Uh, because we don't want a banana that is too curvy, for example, or it's also happening a lot in our fridges. Mm. So that's uh, a key one. And I'd like to mention as well, uh, we have this growing human population. Our human population has more than doubled over the last 50 years, uh, but our planet is still the same size and our resources are limited. Um, so I also think it's very important that we make sure that everyone around the world has the empowerment and um, the information and the means to be able to decide how, about how many kids they want to have as well. Cecile, we know we've just heard how the global livestock production impacts negatively on people's health and on our environment, but it does also contribute to the economy and the resilience of communities that rely upon it as well. So how do we address that issue? Yeah, it's. I think it's all about uh, trade-offs. If it was black and or white, we, we, we would already have answers. Um, yeah, that's true. Livestock is currently contributing to 40% of the agricultural GDP globally. And as you know, in Australia, it's also a big part of the economy. And Australia is the third largest beef exporter in the world. Um, and in many communities, um, livestock is part of individuals and communities' identity. Um, it's also used as an insurance or as a resilience strategy. So in many developing countries, when they, the crop is damaged, uh, the farmer may decide to sell one or two livestock to be able to keep sending the kids to school or to um, be able to buy new crops. So that's definitely um, a challenge. And that's where maybe, maybe we talk about moderating our livestock product consumption in high consuming communities. Um, that's where we can find the balance and, deci and decide within the productivity spe spectrum where we want to sit, uh, depending on how much weight we put to the other sustainability dimensions that we want to look at. Thank you, Cecile. Well, listening patiently to all of the science is uh, chef and farmer Matthew Evans. Matthew, can we just talk about your personal experiences? Because you lived in Sydney, you moved to, to being a food producer on Fat Pig Farm in Tasmania. Explain how your own attitude to food changed through that move. Uh, yeah, look, I guess I, I, um, I, I've done what a lot of people have probably done in their life. I've, I've been a, uh, a very unthinking consumer. I've just eaten whatever uh, was culturally given to me, whatever was uh, appropriate at the time. Um, and then I've been... Uh, sorry, I'll move that down a bit. Um, I've been... Uh, I've been a, a consumer in restaurants, so I've just um, I've been paid to be a glutton, just to eat food and not really think too much about the origins of the food. Um, I, I was a vegetarian for a while at university, um, uh, for uh, mostly for for reasons of poverty, but also because I didn't enjoy um, eating meat for a while. And um, and now we have a farm where we actually kill animals and. Um, and it's made me very conscious as we rear animals and we have a very big market garden. I live in, in southern Tasmania, we have a, a mixed farm. We have pigs and cattle and, and goats and sometimes sheep. We have chooks and, uh, you know, we have a market garden. We have a kilometre worth of garden beds run on organic principles. And I'm very conscious about our meat eating. It's made me question out my own meat eating. When you, when you rear an animal that you um, then choose to, to use for food, it's a very confronting thing. Um, but I just want to go back to a couple of the things that have been brought up today and, and maybe just sort of make, uh, uh, not defend beef, but um, maybe give context to it. So, so just to put things in context, right, um, methane, methane is the, the gas that cows burp out mostly, they fart out a little bit, but mostly they burp it out. Methane is the most damaging greenhouse gas that we're talking about today, which ca uh, cattle are really heavily responsible for in terms of uh, agricultural um, uh, livestock production. Um, uh, it's uh, way more, um, has a w much higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide. So in the first few years, it's about 80 times more harmful, right? So just one kilo of methane is 80 times, you need, eight, you know, it, it's the equivalent of 80 uh, kilos of carbon dioxide. So it's much more damaging. And correct me if I get the science wrong, because, you know, I'm not really the scientist here. But, um, but, but, um, but it's a, you've you got to understand it. How, how the science, how it works as well, because methane's gone after 12 years. So it's very, very uh, damaging for a very short period of time. After 12 years, it's pretty much gone out of the atmosphere, that original methane. 
Um, carbon, it's, it's a carbon molecule. Um, carbon is in the system. So right, carbon dioxide exists in the system. Carbon can be stored in the soil, uh, which Cecile was talking about. Um, carbon, so carbon dioxide in the air, carbon in the soil. It's stored in plants. Uh, they're made of carbon, anything organic. We're made of, of carbon. Um, it can be stored in the oceans. It can be stored in algae and seaweed. Um, and so carbon's in, in a cycle. There's a cycle of carbon between all of these things, between plants and animals, the oceans uh, and the air. And um, so if a, a, a big beast, a ruminant, an animal with four stomachs that has a big fermenter, they ferment grass, they, they ferment something that we can't eat, grass, and they turn it into something we can eat, which is uh, dairy or beef. Um, uh, they, they can eat things that we can't eat because they ferment it. And that fermentation is what causes this methane, this, this terribly um, uh, um, strong, gr powerful greenhouse gas. But they haven't added any carbon to the system. They've taken grass, which was already in the system. Grass has taken carbon dioxide, which is already in the system. And they're in the cycle of the carbon in the system. We've been adding a lot of carbon to the system over the last few years, and that's been stored away for, correct me if I'm wrong, 200 million years since the appropriately named Carboniferous period, when there was a lot of trees and a lot of algae that all fell down and became uh, compressed and became coal and oil and gas, natural gas. When you burn those, when you release those, you release new carbon into the system. And so when you release new carbon into the system, it changes the equilibrium. So I'm not going to defend cows necessarily uh, um, entirely, but um, you have to understand that they're just using carbon that's already in the system. Okay, we're not adding anything to to the natural um, cycle of things at that point. Now, um, as a farmer, I worry I worry about my meat eating and my and, and the carbon. When I hear numbers like 15,000 litres of water to produce a litre of beef, I've done the numbers on our farm. I can tell you it's pretty close to that. But it but you have to understand that's not water that would come out of the shower. That's rainfall. Okay, so when you say, and those numbers, the, the numbers um, that, that generally are quoted 16,000 litres of water to produce a kilo of beef, they're done by um, uh, yeah, Professor Hoekstra, whatever his name is, from, from Holland. It's, it's based on feeding uh, that animal at least two tonnes of stuff that's grown elsewhere, so like grain and silage and hay that's grown elsewhere. It's not based on an animal that just walks around and eating grass. Um, it's based using, it's using rainfall. So on our farm, yeah, it takes about 16, maybe 20,000 litres of water to get a, a kilo of, of beef. But that rain's going to fall whether I've got beef cattle or not, whether I've got a garden or not. So um, is, it, is it a burden on the water system? And I don't think in our system it, it is. It may, it may be in some areas where that water would go downstream and be used to grow uh, chickpeas or something else. Um, you've also got to understand that growing annual crops, annual crops are things that you grow and harvest every year. We have a garden, so we grow annual things, things you grow and harvest every year, and we grow perennial things, things that live on from year to year, so like nut and fruit trees. Worldwide, on average, through our current agricultural practices, we lose two to three tonnes of topsoil per person per year. And most of that is lost growing annual crops, okay? Fruit, uh, but not fruit, feed, mostly vegetables, uh, um, uh, pulses, grains. So... When we talk about farming, when we talk about impacts, and we talk about sustainability, nothing's simple, okay? So is the cow the demon? In our society, where we eat 25 kilos of beef per year, 25 kilos of pork per year, and 50 kilos of chicken to, per year, yeah, we're probably eating too much beef. You know, maybe the impacts from that beef are, um, are, are causing a problem. But the impacts from that beef are, are very short-lived compared to the carbon that you burn driving to the supermarket to buy your lentils, okay? What, what's the worst thing we can do? The worst thing we do is burn carbon, so burn, burn diesel, petrol, oil, gas, to grow grain to feed to cattle, I think. I think that's the worst thing, because then we're adding carbon to the system. And then, when we do grow the beef, then transporting it across the, across the country. Um, you know, I think the average, and, you got, and, and I'm, I'm very, uh, the, the stats in Australia are really hard to find, but in America, and it's much worse than here, but the average thing on a supermarket shelf has gone 1,500 miles, has travelled 1,500 miles, right? Like that kind of system uh, is, is, a, is, um, is definitely damaging the world. But that's everything on the supermarket shelf. It's not just beef. It's you know, everything in a tin, everything in a packet, everything we grow. I'm a great believer in um, uh, uh, the, the sort of understanding farming systems. When, if we grow an animal, a beef animal, we worked it out that they, they would use about uh, 50 litres of water over their lifetime that they would drink in. Um, 50 litres of water or so to produce a, a kilo of beef. 
um, something that, I mean, they pee that back out on the paddock where it would have rained anyway, but let's say that, you know, it's about 50, 50 litres of water. Is that too much? You know, the, the Australian stats are somewhere between 30 and 500 litres of water to produce a, a, you know, a kilo of beef. Is that too much? That's for you guys to decide. The thing is that, that I can't grow vegetables without having an impact. I can't grow um, uh, beef without having an impact. I can't grow chicken without having an impact. We can't grow salmon without having an impact. And so when we think about beef, I think we have to look at it in context. And I think what Andy was saying is quite important, is, is that it, it has value in, it, uh, in terms of its, its high protein. Um, but in our society, it's different than, than around the world. So around the world, one in, one in four women is anemic, and, and, and two in five children are, 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 are malnourished, under five are malnourished. And that's mostly to do with um, lack of uh, you know, access to, to animal protein. Here, we're eating you know, way, you know, was it four times the recommended amount. In most places in the world, they don't get enough. So what we do, so, so the, the way we have to think about beef is our own context, our impacts, what, how we want it to, um, how it affects us as a human and our health, how it affects the, affects the community around us and how it affects the environment in the bigger picture. And it is an area where you can have great impact, but I think you should also, I don't think you should be frightened by these numbers that often come from overseas and are often a little bit, a little bit designed to frighten you. And the problem with being frightened, if you're frightened and you go, oh my God, beef is so damaging, and oh, but then I've heard about salmon who, you know, they eat, you know, they're all fed, you know, chicken feathers and chicken bone meal and chicken fat, and that's got to have an impact, you know. You'll never, you, you, you never relax about your eating. You, you should look at the positives and not the negatives. You should think of what's the best, what's the best thing I could eat today for my family, for my health, for my community, for, for the environment, um, and not beat yourself if that, you know, at some point you eat, you know, extra beef. Thank you. <laughs> You've covered a lot of ground there. If I could just ask you perhaps just one more question, and it touches on what you were just saying then. There is something that we have certainly in uh, the developed world, where we're very lucky to have the privilege of, of great food, there is something that is greater than just the food for our nutrition in itself. So do you think that we are going to see um, a, a rush of people becoming vegan or vegetarian, or are there reasons, cultural reasons, why that's not going to happen here in Australia? Yeah, I think Cecile put it really well. If it was black and white, you know, we would already fixed, fixed the problem. Um, I think, we, certainly in Australia, the, the average person eats too much meat. There's some evidence that vegetarians and vegans are becoming, um, people are becoming more, there's more people becoming vegetarian and vegan, but they're, they're from a very low base. And, and, and if, um, uh, there are lots of, there are really strong reasons why people aren't taking, choosing that path. And most of them are because people are frightened or because uh, um, they feel that you're going to take something away. So it's an area, changing your diet is an area where you can have an impact on, uh, on the world and, and through eating less meat, as, um, uh, as Angie put it really well, um, you know, you, it's very something you can do immediately. But there's, there's all these barriers to it because when someone says, oh, you want to, you know, you change your light bulb or, you know, get the bus instead of, or ride your bicycle instead of driving your car, um, it's easier to do than someone saying, you can't have what you've had for the last 20 years for Christmas dinner. You can't have the Sunday roast. You, can't, you have to change what's important to your family, to your culture, to your community. And so there are fundamental uh, problems built into the fabric of society because food, food is this thing that we do not just to fuel ourselves, but to bind societies, to cement relationships, to, you know, we fall in love over the dinner table, we, you know, we argue over the dinner table, we, we have meals at, you know, to celebrate weddings and, and you know, we eat even, you know, even at, uh, at, at the funerals at people's passing, we usually have food. And there are strong cultural attachments to the foods we eat. And if we want to make change, then, then we have to make, you know, sort of changes to our diet as a community, then, the, the, then it will take some movement in our cultural um, attachment to those foods and when we eat them. Thank you, Matthew. If I could come back to you, please, Angie. Um, we've heard a lot in the uh, media in the past few years about food shocks occurring. There are geopolitical reasons why there are food shortages in some areas. Is food security going to be um, the primary global challenge this century? Absolutely, it is a big challenge. Uh, the population is growing at an exponential rate and the truth is if we continue to consume the levels of meat we do, the food in the way that we do, uh, we're just going to not be able to produce enough at a certain point. So we have to look at changing systems and also it's important to recognise I think that the top 10% of high impact beef producers particularly 
create about 12 times as much carbon. They use about 50 times as much land as the bottom 10%. So it's about making sure that we move those high impact producers down and whether that's done through things like labeling food with environmental impact and helping consumers make more educated choices. Sort of, we could also look at redistributing some of the half a trillion dollars in subsidies that go out to agricultural farms every year around the world and saying that we're going to reward the good producers, the ones that are having a lower impact and doing things to bring down their environmental footprint. Um, there are so many things that we can do to sort of help secure that food for, is, the, for the long term. Is one of the problems though the fact that we don't measure these things accurately, that there aren't transparent uh, bodies responsible for doing the bottom line accounting on what's going on in farming. Absolutely, and it's it's hard to regulate these things and to look at the impact. But there's been studies being done uh, in America, in China, uh, and through Africa, where actually farmers have been given mobile devices to put in the input of the amount of grain they use and the amount of water and whatnot per 100 grams of protein, and, and it's actually been really successful. And the what the the farms that do better have been getting certain credits and rewards, so I think that's a way we can also look at both increasing reporting and regulation. Obviously, there needs to be some oversight in that as well. It can't be all self-reporting, um, but then not having it in a way where it's completely punitive and putting restrictions on people, but rewarding and giving the incentive to do better. And she, Andy went through some of the four main areas that we can use as alternatives to meat in our diets. I'm interested to hear your response to those, but particularly cultured meat. Yeah, I'm so excited about cultured meat. Um, really, it's an area that I'm very passionate about, personally. Um, Andy did mention that it's about $23,000, uh, but that is coming down really rapidly. It was $100,000 when, well, actually 100,000 pounds, so closer to $200,000 when it first was um, launched in Maastricht by uh, a guy called Mark Post in 2013. And his company, Mosa Meat, they plan to have it on shelves in supermarkets by 2021, and at that time they think it'll be around 10 pounds or 20 dollars for a patty. So it's really about being able to scale up the production and down the cost. And I think they're making really significant headway in that area. Uh, just really quickly on that, um, I don't know the latest, but are they still using the hormone from a, uh, a preterm fetal calf to yes. grow that meat? Yes, they are, but they don't want to, and they're looking at having it being completely plant-based. So at the moment, they do use bovine fetal serum to stimulate the growth, but they want to be able to use plant-based serums. And that's actually an area where farmers can get involved. And I know at the last um, conference that they had in Maastricht, a lot of farmers attended because they're in a position to be able to learn how to produce this as well. They have the crops and they can grow the plant-based serums and, and help produce it as well. So it's not necessarily about putting them out of work, it's about being able to scale up our productivity and have a more environmentally friendly, one that's better for animals, uses less land and water across the board. Andy, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I think it's really important in this debate and discussion uh, that we do consider farmers as being part of the solution. And I think for many of these issues, farmers are vilified. Uh, they're vilified for not taking care of the land. They're vilified for producing you know, crops and produce that are killing us through health-related issues. Of course, they're not. We're, we're choosing uh, to consume those pro products. Um, I think uh, working out uh, alternative futures where farmers are able to contribute, but they're also responding to consumer demand uh, for those products. So you're caught in that classic tautology of supply and demand. If we want to move things forward, we have to change uh, the demand side of the supply uh, uh, chain issue. Also, it's a really important issue for, you know, we can't, if we all became vegetarian tomorrow, it would be uh, a huge problem for regional Australia. So, you know, where do livestock producers in Australia go with a declining uh, local uh, market for meat if we decide to uh, restrict our meat consumption here in Australia. And part of the issue there is Australian meat is extremely well valued globally. And okay, you're contributing to uh, the carbon miles in terms of uh, the export of that product, 
but uh, again, you're targeting potentially middle and um, uh, high-class earners within Asian markets that want to buy Australian beef. You therefore move the production towards uh, a premium end that fetches uh, a premium within the price so that offsets the quantity production against the quality uh, production. One of the other things that we heard about uh, from uh, Celine was the uh, issue around food waste. Now, it's true, here in Australia, most of our food waste in the food supply chain is at the consumer end. It's around the supermarkets that think we don't want to buy bendy bananas or small or large bananas. Fine, Woolies, I'd buy whatever shape of banana you're going to put on the, uh, on the shelf. And we need to send that message to Woolies and Coles because it's a, it's a mis misconception. But 40% of uh, that food is wasted. Now, coming back to insects. Uh, so, if we were to harvest uh, the food waste, particularly from supermarkets, from restaurants, and from our own fridges, uh, harvest that, bring that back. Black soldier fly larvae will eat anything, literally anything. You can put a, a mixed pile of meat waste, vegetable waste, pulse waste, and they'll chomp their way through it. You can then feed the larvae, not back to humans, I'm not going to go there, okay, but back to uh, livestock and animals. And it's an excellent source of vitamins, nutrition, uh, and has, has an excellent profile. So these are important changes that we need to start making now around thinking about the efficiency uh, within our uh, food supply systems. Cecile, uh, Antarctica is a place that many of us don't get to go to, yet it is a bit of a barometer of what is happening um, globally around climate change. Last year you were part of a, the largest ever female-only expedition to Antarctica as part of the Women in Science and Leadership program, Homeward Bound. <laughs> Could you please give us your first-hand experience of what is happening there and whether or not you were shocked by it? Yeah, it's true. I've been very, very privileged to um, discover this part of the world. Uh, so it's one of the l last wilderness on the Earth, and um, we've been visiting a lot of research stations, and every time we were meeting with, with scientists there, um, the message was always the same. They were showing us photos of how the landscape looked like um, a few decades ago and how it looks like now and the ice is really melting at very fast rates and what's very interesting with Antarctica is that it's actually uh, a critical barometer of our decisions at the leadership table at the policy table as well and so the whole um, idea beh behind Homeward Bound is um, the belief that if we bring more diversity at the leadership table, then we be able to uh, solve faster our very complex and fast-changing challenges. Yeah. Look, we're going to have questions in a moment, so could I ask you if you're thinking of something as we are speaking, if you could formulate the question and keep it as short as possible. In a moment, um, Samara will have the mic and we'll be moving around, so keep that in mind. Put your hand up nice and high if you want. But I'd like to throw a question open to the whole panel, I guess. Uh, can you love animals and eat meat? Can you be an ethical omnivore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this idea that you can't love animals and, and, and eat them is, is a bit ridiculous. I think the people, the people who, who have no uh, empathy for animals who don't uh, like animals or love animals, who, who have no qualms at suffering being caused to animals, are a tiny insignificant, well, maybe not insignificant, but a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of, of humanity. Um, so it's a fairly normal thing to, uh, to love animals and eat them. I was in a, in a market in China once, and I was, it was a pretty horrific market. They were selling lots of wildlife and lots of uh, things. And um, I saw it, you know, there was, there was 16 trucks with turtles, and there was snakes and scorpions and people, you know, dismembering frogs so, so customers could take them home and stuff. And, um, and then I saw someone struggling with a sack in a 44-gallon drum, and they were drowning a cat. And, um, and I was with a Chinese guide, and I asked him about it. I said, what, what is it? And he said, they're drowning a cat. And, and, and I was a bit, like, I was a lot taken aback. I was I just ceased being a vegetarian just before I went. And, um, and, I, and I was sort of struggling with this whole concept of the market, let alone this thing. And I said, oh, in Australia, you know, people have pets, uh, cats as pets, and they love their cats. And he goes, oh, I've got a, I've got a pet cat. Um, don't you have goldfish and you eat fish? You know, and 
okay, a goldfish is different species to a barramundi, but his point was you can be an animal lover and eat an animal. And lots of people, we, humans have this very powerful capacity to, um, to be able to uh, uh, distance themselves from, from something they don't care about uh, or, or to care less about um, and to, in, in order to be able to, um, to eat. But you have to understand everything we do has an impact on animals. Every single thing we do has an impact on animals. So, so I was just reading recently they killed 200,000 ducks so they can grow rice in the rice fields in Australia, right? So if you think you're eating rice and no animal died, you're dreaming. If you've ever been to a rice field in Thailand or Vietnam, wherever you buy your rice from, and they're selling rats from the paddy field cooked over charcoal, or they're selling frogs from the paddy field, it doesn't matter where you go, something has died to produce that rice. Um, you know, the, the, this myth, when we, the things, we grow vegetables and where we kill most animals is in the garden. You know, it really sadly is. Um, so this idea that there's, there's a, you know, animals die and animals don't die and you can choose that no animal dies is, is a bit of a fallacy. Um, I think it's, it's nice for people to feel that they're doing less harm and I'm sure that lots of people who don't eat meat are probably doing less harm, but they're not doing no harm and it's different harm. Um, you know, the most, the most mammals that die in Australia uh, for, through agricultural means is to grow wheat. Um, you know, the most animals that, that die each day in Australia are at the hands of feral cats, but I don't see anyone doing much about that. There's a, there's a million uh, reptiles, a million birds and a, billion small, a million small animals die at the, the claws and, and teeth of feral cats every single day. I don't see anyone doing anything about that. So the fact that an animal dies, that you can eat it, is not... You know, it's not outside the realms of normal possibilities in terms of our impacts on the world. But, it, but where, the way, how we grow that food, how we do it, uh, you know, it has the impact. Farmers will do what you want. You want to do a good job, they'll do a good job. You want to do a cheap, 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 they'll do cheap as possible. And either the farmer, the animal or the environment will suffer in, as a consequence. So the consumer's got some responsibility in this, well, a lot of responsibility. Sorry. Just briefly, if we could just get the other panellists' view on that. Just, uh, yeah, so eating pets uh, uh, looks like a horrendous thing to do. But if we consider where we've come from in terms of a species, you know, our, our history has been to domesticate animals. Now, either we've domesticated animals to eat them or we've domesticated them because they're useful, like dogs and cats, keeping vermin down. Down, uh, helping with the, um, uh, the fetching of animals back in from the field. So our history is one of utilising uh, uh, those species. Um, and uh, I think also we've become very divorced uh, from where our meat comes from. Uh, we used to go out and be much more involved in the uh, uh, kind of process of bringing in uh, meat and uh, just buying that from the supermarket makes us divorced from that. And now it seems horrific that you'd go out and kill an animal Whereas, uh, uh, historically, we've been much more closely related to that actual process. Angie? Yeah, I think Andy's right there, especially in that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on um, with people disassociating where their food comes from and what it is that they're eating. Um, but whether you can love animals and still eat them, obviously a lot of people do still love animals and still eat them, but... Um, not to say that they don't love animals at all, but I think well, we need to be more cognizant of where our food comes from, and I definitely think that involves saying no to factory farming and the large-scale farming that happens there, because that's definitely unethical. <laughs> Cecilia? Yeah, when you asked that question, the first um, word that came to my mind is animal welfare. And that's true that um, how much do we want to, like we don't want to compromise animal welfare. And that's a very complex notion as well. What's animal welfare? Um, depending on your beliefs and on your values, where is this minimum threshold of animal welfare? That's very, very complex. And how do we assess animal welfare? How can we make sure the animal is happy? And at some point, animal welfare is also our own welfare. So it's a bit human-centered as well because we don't want to feel too bad about the way we treat animals. So very complex questions around uh, this. It is. And we don't have the time to delve more deeply into it. We do have a little bit of time for questions. Samara is wandering around. Sir, would you like to go first? Um, yeah, you've talked about alternatives, but um, you haven't really touched on mushrooms and fungus in general. I just wonder if anybody's got cons comments on fungi. 
Yeah, I think fungi are a definite alternative because uh, the, the protein profile of fungi is better than uh, plant-based in terms of amino acid uh, mixtures. So mixing in uh, fungi together with soy burgers and uh, that kind of, when I refer to plant-based uh, alternatives, fungi are definitely part of that solution. Thank you. Did anyone else want to address that? No. We'll take your question, please. Um, is kangaroo bad to eat as well? Who wants to take that one? Andy? Uh, well, it's probably not as bad as, as beef. So, I mean, one of the things that we, we consider just, just quickly in terms of, you know, we talk about 60% of arable land is used for uh, the, uh, the rearing and feeding of animals uh, globally. So the, the notion is that you take all those animals off that land uh, and then you'd suddenly be in climate change mitigation nirvana. Okay? If you took all the animals off that land and you had all that land, you know, trees and shrubs would grow back, but all the animals would go back into that place as well, and they're still going to emit the greenhouse gases. Okay? Not so much uh, at the extent or to the volume that uh, intensive uh, cattle production is. So macropods, sorry, kangaroos uh, here in Australia, low impact because they've got big feet so they don't uh, cause soil erosion but it's a very good form of meat it's low in fat and it's very high in iron and uh, as, a, as a nation we go out and we cull massive numbers of kangaroos we should be harvesting uh, that population and <laughs> chucking a kangaroo steak on the barbie on australia day thank you thank you just a quick one on that. It does take uh, more grass to get a kilo of kangaroo than it does to get a kilo of beef because they've got a single stomach, not multiple stomachs. So less methane, but less efficient use of grass. So it's a... Balancing act, doesn't it? It, it often is. Sir? Uh, that was my question too. So uh, here's a vote over here for kangaroos. Two quick things. Um, if we really wanted to make an impact on the amount of land that was being used to generate food, we should really seriously consider keeping pets. Uh, they have a huge impact on the environment. Uh, I, I can't remember what the stats are, but there was some staggering figure recently about what a dog takes in terms of hectares of food production. I also wanted to give a shout out to a young woman uh, who has formed the Insect Food association or something in Tasmania, I can't remember what it's called. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but if you want to know more by this week's Weekly Times, which has uh, an article on her. Okay. Did you want to address that at all, Matthew? Oh, yeah. I mean, in terms of land use, um, you have to think, you know, what's the worst use of agricultural land? Generally, it's golf courses. Um, really close to cities, beautiful land, absolute waste of carbon. Uh, you know, uh, of, of, the car, you know of, of the carbon that we've got in terms of burning uh, uh, petrol and, and uh, putting fertiliser on. Um, but, you know, you've got to, society has to decide where we should put our efforts. So there's an area around the world the size of Tasmania, a little bit bigger, I think, than Tasmania, to grow grapes for wine. Nobody has to drink wine. Nobody has to eat beef, okay? Nobody has to play golf. But as a society, we have to decide how we use our water, how we use our land, and how, what we do to the environment. That's not for me to decide, not for you to decide, it's up for us to decide. As well, sorry. <laughs> I, I think we need to take account, into account where the land is as well. So there's currently 4.5 million cattle grazing in the Great Barrier Reef catchment area. And that's an area where when it rains, the soil has been so eroded by so many cattle being squeezed into a small space that all that fine silt washes out to sea, chokes coral of sunlight, all the nitrogen phosphates in the water lead to crown of thorns, starfish outbreaks, and they, nasty buggers, they eat the coral alive. So I think it's about proper designation of land as well, what's used for what and where. We have time for only one more question, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hi, this is a question for Angie. Um, first, thumbs up on the Great Barrier Reef catchment. Um, my question is, can we uncouple ourselves from the industrial food uh, you know, uh, structure? Um, I used to be really excited about cultured meat and now I'm not so sure because are we just once again putting all our dollars into the pocket of a single corporation, just like we did with Monsanto, who which now controls vast amounts of agriculture? Okay. Angie, 
Yeah, that's a valid question. And I think um, it comes down to, we're sort of at the beginning of this. So we need to decide how the industry is going to work. And I know, as I said, there's been a lot of farmers attending cultured meat conferences and looking at sort of democratizing the way that cultured meat is grown. It's also that there is IP issues tied up with who owns the intelligence about how to run these things. But um, I, I'm a bit of a pragmatist as well. And do I think that everybody's going to turn vegetarian or vegan overnight or stop eating meat straight away within the limited time frame that we have to turn things around. I don't think they do. And so we need to run different strategies parallel to each other. And I think this is an area where people who just won't give up meat, but if they saw it on the shelf, a version of it that used a lot less land and water, they might be more inclined to make that decision. Thank you for your questions. Um, there are some NGOs um, with some sites here to the left of the stage if you'd like to go and have a look. Matthew will be signing uh, copies of his book, Scormay Farmer and Summer on Fat Pig Farm, just behind the tent in a few minutes' time. I would like to thank you for being a wonderful audience today, but please join me in thanking our panellists, Angie Plummer, <laughs> Professor Andy Lowe, Cecile God and Matthew Evans. Thank you very much.